Welcome to the 29th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about multi-factor authentication, authentication versus authorization, hardware keys, and other aspects of this big, crazy authentication mess. So before we start, there's an important distinction I want to bring up, and that's authentication is a separate thing from authorization. A lot of people confuse the two, and tonight we're talking about authentication, not authorization. Authentication is proving you are who you say you are, and authorization is a service saying you have access to a thing in the service. Um, For many years, having an account with a company or with a university meant that you had, say, email access or a network drive because they were tied to the same system and you couldn't have one without the other. And the way you shut off somebody's email account was disabling their login. And that is basically saying that authentication is authorization. That's a whole nother mess. We'll probably do an episode about that specifically sometime, but we're not talking about authorization tonight. We're talking about authentication. Specifically, multi-factor authentication, commonly called two-factor authentication. Before we get into like some of the deep technical things, I, I at least wanted to say that even if it seems like uh, some of these solutions are half baked. Uh, I really encourage two factor enabling two factor authentication with any web service that you can, uh, whether that's like Apple's two factor implementation, uh, AWS's for their uh, um, console, uh, Google for Gmail, their services. The list goes on. Um, even if even if it is SMS, which has come out as even NIST came out and said that that actually was a bad thing to use. Um, I think it's important so, to enable yeah, those. So, 20 bucks in hardware, I think you can spoof a cell tower and you attach a computer to that and, yeah, you can intercept SMS pretty easy. Oh, but that's beside the point. Right. I mean, right. But what you just described there is, you know, that, that takes effort. <laughs> And it goes above and, the level of the casual attacker. Right, it's true. Right. Um, I, granted, at least for most services we're talking about, especially like AWS, um, Google, all those, luckily there's better options than just SMS. Uh, I'm more thinking about like, you know, like even my healthcare provider, their web login is the only way you can a- do two-factor is through SMS. And unfortunately, a lot of those, you know, big enterprise apps uh, have gone banks. that way. Exactly. Banks. Um, so enabling that, knowing that that is still a, a, it's a weaker step form, in the right direction, right, right. Um, it's a poor one, but it is a step in the right direction. My biggest problem with the SMS based two FA is that a lot of people's cell phones are now tied to their computers. So if you have their computer and they wanted you to do a two factor auth messages on their, on their Mac will pop up the code that they send you to do the two factor auth. Right. And, well, now you have it. Right. So there's there's obviously flaws. I I think it's important to still enable them. Um, just because I mean nowadays, it seems like every other day somebody's uh, reporting a security breach. Um, I mean, and if you're not using different passwords for every service, you're you're going to be hurting. I think Yahoo just reported again that they had another large set of compromised accounts or another, another attack few vector. billion accounts hacked. Yeah. Time it doesn't. So what is multi-factor authentication? I think we should step back a moment and talk about what is 
what is security? What what do we use to prove who we say we are? Um, and it's usually based off of one, two, or perhaps all three of something you know, like a password, something you have, like a key to your car or your smart card, uh, those lovely security badges you get at work. Don't you all love those? <sighs> um, or perhaps something that you are, your fingerprint, your iris scan, facial recognition software. It's those three things that are what we build our authentication infrastructure off of. Uh, historically, that's just been passwords. Um, as we've uh, been chatting about using smartphones as MFA devices, um, the MFA device is supposed to be something you have. Smartphones, since they're easily attackable, easily hackable, um, really almost as easy as a normal machine at this point. Um, and since you can back it up and easily restore it, uh, one of the arguments about using smartphones as MFA devices is it's more or less what you know. You can always restore your smartphone to the empty phone sitting beside you by your computer. Um, so a password and an MFA on your smartphone ends up being two instances of what you know rather than something that you truly have, something that you can actually lose. So some people for like corporate VPN access are issued an RSA secure ID token that has a little LCD screen on it. And when you go to log into the VPN or to the site, whatever it is, they give you a challenge and you plug that into your device and it gives you a response and then you're off to the races and you've proven that you have the device that you say you have plus the password that you know. So now you have the two factors in play. You have something you know and something you have with you to prove that it was you and not somebody else who had copied your password. So, Brendan, you're old enough. Do you remember the movie A Beautiful Mind? I didn't actually see it. Oh, man. Well, other than the fact it's about a guy who has delusions, um, there's some really cool scenes about um, the guy being implanted with a security device in his forearm um, that would have basically an LCD screen that glowed through his skin. And, of course, it was implanted in him. He couldn't lose it. Um, and it was a time-based um, one-time password deal. Um, but to enter his secure environment, he had to copy the code from his forearm into the lockbox security panel on the front gate. And of all the interesting things about the movie, I thought the I, that it was before its time in how it represented security to, uh, to us casual moviegoers. There's also been a re recent push towards the third factor, which is something that you are. Um, Apple's Touch ID is a good example of this, or facial recognition software, or a bunch of other avenues that use a physical attribute about you as a person to prove who you are. The problem with this is that with high-resolution photographs or with even amateur-level... Exactly. Amateur-level <laughs> investigative work, you can get people's fingerprints... Or if you have a high-resolution camera, you can get you know a, a photograph of their eyes or their faces or however else. And once that's been compromised, you can't change your fingerprints. You can't change your face. You can't say, well, you, well, you can change your fingerprints, but it's going to hurt. You can burn them off or something, but then you don't have right. usable fingerprints. And so using something that you are is generally a bad idea. If you're, using, if you're actually going to do three full factors, if you're going to do something you have, something you are, and something that you know... Maybe 
but it's not all the 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 chintzy security movies hollywood era stuff have all of these awful examples of oh you put your hand into the thing and then the good guy just cuts the dead soldier's hand off and puts it in the in the reader and you're off to the races and it's demonstrating exactly why that's a bad thing um well and also a lot of uh data centers love to do flashy demos with their security where you have to put your hand on the reader or even some have a retina scanner. It's like, ooh. Hey, it's yeah, all the, about the Colo customers. And all of this falls down when a state actor, say the United States government, says we want to get access to your phone and it's secured by a fingerprint rather than a password. And unreasonable search and seizure does not extend to fingerprints. It only extends to passwords, things you know. So now you can be compelled by the government to give a of give incriminating evidence against yourself because a fingerprint is not something you you can keep a secret. I've also heard though that the touch ID on the iPhones is actually pretty reasonably well implemented. It can't uh, be easily fooled unless you actually try. Uh, so your historical uh, methods of of using Play-Doh as an imprint or talc powder um, actually doesn't work with those things. Which and you only have a limited promising. number of attempts before it locks the device anyway. And if you haven't authed in 24 sure. hours, it locks the device anyway. And there are some protections there, but in and general... you can set it to delete the device as well with uh, enough failure attempts. Yeah. But in general, I'm really appreciative of the security factors of the iPhone. I, I, that's definitely a winning feature there. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to say, if you feel like you're about to cross a border or something or whatever, you uh, just put your finger on the reader a couple times or just power off your phone which you may want to do anyway because now they supposedly just plug it up and dump all the contents off and try to decrypt it later so yeah and at least in the past apple's ios security stuff is most effective when the phone is freshly booted because once you decrypt the once you first log in you've seeded the memory with all of the pieces but until that's happened it actually it hasn't fully initialized the security pieces so you can't fully dump the memory of a phone that's Freshly powered on, but has never been unlocked. Anyway, moving on. So yeah, back to the whole uh, multi-factor authentication bits. So so yeah, so uh, I guess we can get into like some of the hardware stuff. Like uh, YubiKey is probably one of the most popular, well, newer popular ones. Obviously, and we the should RSA. probably support, uh, start with the popular methods now, which are the the time-based uh, one-time passwords, which are the six-digit codes that I think most of us are familiar with if we've done this before. Um, what that involves is is when you register at a service, they send you a code, usually in a QR code, um, that you take your iPhone or whatever and scan, and your iPhone collects this list of codes. Um, you have a different code for each service that you register for. I've got 20 or 30 in, in uh, my phone. I use um, the Authy account or Authy app. Most people use Google Authenticator. That's um, the common uh, multi-factor authentication that folks are used to, um, or is commonly available, and is probably one of the the, the weaker in forms of, of what we can do today. Um, the code rotates every 30 seconds. A s- service will accept codes in a 90-second range, I think. That sounds right, but I don't know the, the details of the implementation exactly. It's a step up from having SMS, though. It's it's truly a step up. It's truly a step in the right direction. Uh, sort of the downside is that 
if you want to upgrade to a hardware token, which is uh, uh, definitely more secure, you end up being very limited in the number of of uh, time-based one-time password codes accounts you can put on that piece of hardware. A lot of times it's just one. And, well, that just doesn't cut it, uh, which sort of forces you to the a smartphone uh, method of storing and managing them all. Yet another password database. So one of the nice things, or one of the new things that's come out recently is the YubiKeys that Jack mentioned, or we mentioned a, a minute ago. And they have the benefit of a number of very clever tricks to extend the number of private keys you can have on there, those kinds of things. And it does far more than just the web-based challenge response pieces or the time-based code pieces. Yeah, I mean, especially the YubiKey, uh, was it 4 or whatever, can uh, store your open GPG keys on them, generate them, uh, store your... Um, SSH keys on them, generate them as well. Um, the only negative I've found so far with them is that you can't, they actually use different quote-unquote slots for those, and you can only have one slot open at a time. So if you want to do like get signing, um, you can't then also uh, switch over and use the uh, SSH key portion of it if you're using like the OpenGPG part of it. Um, if without your having company to kill is everything. standardized on um, PIV operation, um, ooh, I, what's the acronym? I forget. Um, which is X509 certificate based, uh, which is easy to generate SSH keys from. Um, that's great and actually a, a pretty reasonable security. Um, but that means you can't use a device for GPG key signing or G, it's any of its GPG support either. So right. it's it's limited in how many things you can combine. So you end up getting multiple keys or, or choosing uh, one basic mode over the other. Um, the GPG mode is, it seems to be the most common. Uh, the PIV mode is definitely simpler. Um, but with the GPG mode, you can use the GPG agent to uh, emulate an SSH key for you. Exactly. And do get signing. But the magic, really, of the key is it generates and stores all the secrets. The secrets never leave the key, and the secrets are never exposed to the to the network. And it's able to do all the signing and um, uh, cryptographic uh, hashing stuff for you. This means that your backup of your laptop or your desktop never has the key in it. So somebody can't go and do an offline brute force against your backup and try to recover a key from that. It means no that secrets on your servers. Well, it means that malware on a machine, if you have a, if you're running a windows box for whatever horrible reason, um, key it will logger. be able to get to the, the, the secret key data because it's never exposed directly to the host operating system. Um, it's actually quite clever the way the UB key handles it. The, the, the challenge comes into the YubiKey, and then the YubiKey does the cryptographic operations on it and then holds the response until the device is physically touched, or you can configure it, but generally it's so you physically touch it to make sure that this isn't somebody offline attacking. And so you know that, yes, I'm sitting at my computer, but I didn't write SSH to something, so I'm not going to allow that, that call to go through. So a script that's on your machine can't then, as you, do something. It's all rather well thought out and and nice for 
giving you a, a much deeper layer of security than you would otherwise have. The, to me, the real issue with the YubiKeys is they're a pain in the butt to set up. Um, there are definitely ways to uh, offline generate a private GPG key and uh, be able to store that key, that GPG key on, say, two YubiKeys. Uh, so they're essentially identical, but you keep one in your safe deposit box in case you lose the first one. Um, but any sort of advanced configuration, even the simple configuration, is pretty hairy pretty quickly. Um, and Yubico's website is is very buzzword compliant, but doesn't really uh, isn't really very user friendly as far as walking people through setting up their YubiKeys. Um, and to me, that's that's sort of the big barrier of entry is is making that technology simple enough that any normal person could buy a YubiKey, get themselves set up for two-factor authentication, and start using the internet in a much more secure fashion. But at this point, you still have to have a, a security guru not far away. I think that's part Plus of the reason that people are moving towards U2F. Is that what you were going to talk about, Jared? I was just about to say, I, okay. I think that's the reason U2F is getting so popular and so many providers are jumping on the, the bandwagon because for like, what, 20 bucks, you can get a, a key that basically just supports U2F. The FIDO our, U2F keys are from Ubico are 17 bucks, 18 bucks. And in yeah, bulk, exactly. you can get U2F um, keys for like 8 or $10 when, when you start ordering like 1000 at a time. And it's a very quick and easy way to enable that for people who are less Gee. technically inclined. And the U2F does, it's simp- it's multi-factor authentication. It's your second auth only, but it actually really is quite ingenious. Um, the key only stores uh, an encryption key locally, and the uh, service that you register with stores your public key and your encrypted private key uh, encrypted with the the key on the on the fighter U2F if I remember correctly, so you have the ability to use as many services as humanly possible without having to manage multiple codes. There's no freaking code to type in ever. Uh, you don't have to manage multiple keys. It's it's all one key and it all just kind of works magically. So that's I really like U2F. There is. Two very strong caveats with U2F at the moment, though. The first being that the only web browser that you can use it with right now is Chrome. Yep, Chrome. If you're a Safari or Firefox user, you're out of luck. Firefox should have support shortly, um, if you believe the internet rumor. But Safari, Internet Exploder, uh, your guess is as good as mine. And some of my Android using friends have used U2F devices with the NFC chips in them to do second factor from their Android devices, but Apple does not allow anybody else to use the NFC chip in the iPhone, so that is not available to iPhone users, which is unfortunate. That, to me, is a real showstopper, because I, I use LastPass a lot, and I have LastPass on my phone as well, and sometimes I need to access my passwords from my phone. And if my LastPass account is protected by U2F, which they support now, um, at this point, I there's no physical way to get it on my uh, iPhone. And that's, that's a problem. 
So I think it's safe to say that we are in general in favor of hardware keys and the idea that you use a dedicated device as your second factor rather than an SMS or an app on your cell phone. Unfortunately, there are a couple of implementation details you have to be aware of. Um, Jack, you mentioned earlier, you know, especially with the, the YubiKey, the more advanced features really require a deep understanding of all the security protocols to get it co- configured correctly. And if you don't have that knowledge, you will not succeed or you will have a very, very hard time of it. Yeah, the the biggest downfall of of these hardware devices is that different groups of people are working toward different standards. Uh, some standards are starting to to emerge as the winners of the pack, but a lot of this is still very new. Um, so getting, you know, the magic is to have a single device that does your second factor authentication with everything, your SSH, your websites, everything. And that's that's simply not a reality yet. The other piece is really far from it, unfortunately. The other implementation problem that I have is if you're trying to secure an infrastructure of servers and you're trying to do SSH or however else to protect the login to your machines, and (laughs) if you have your authentication provider external to your data center, a denial of service attack on the authentication provider means that you can't get into your machines anymore because it's offline now. Um, Some of the protocols you can easily uh, work with a service to add support to your application. Um, There are some libraries to natively support uh, U2F in your web apps. And at this point, U2F is really only available through for web applications. Although there does seem to be some hints of, of some broader support in the future. But yes, welcome to the not quite future yet. And the getting back to Brendan's point, if you're using second fa- uh, multi-factor authentication with your server infrastructures, um, Ansible is a really popular tool. Um, and it's based on SSH. And if you have to enter in a uh, time-based one-time password code for every SSH command or touch your YubiKey for every SSH command, um, if things aren't well thought through, um, tools like Ansible would become very painful to use. I need to update something on 3,000 hosts. Oh, oh wait, that's that's bad. See, how I think many presses is that button rated for? <laughs> I, I, I guess that's where, like... Uh, What's that tool that um, Netflix released a while back where basically it generated on the fly uh, logins to Linux boxes and generated a key, Bless, temporary key? Yeah, that's it. Um, because, you know, th- th- that's, a, that's a whole other problem to solve and, and two-factor auth on SSH connections or pseudo almost seems kind of, uh, I don't know, the wrong way to, to, to attack it. Especially when your infrastructure is that large, and like you mentioned, if you need to run a command against three thousand servers, and we I mean, have to have an additional multi-factor authentication for sudo. Yeah, let's talk about that some more. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. downside here is is with a, a Linux-based infrastructure and SSH, 
is thinking this through. So a, you have security to do your job, um, but b, you can still actually physically do your job, um, especially in the operations space because we're we're frequently called in to help on boxes we know nothing about or we know very little about when things are are broken or not working as optimally as they could. And of course, when everything's working fine, everything well. You know, all, all the services work and all the network routing works and everything else is quick and responsive. But we're often called in in the middle of the night when, oh, there's a network issue or there's a latency issue. And so we're not getting things back in time. And suddenly, if you have a fancy authentication protocol that is time sensitive or otherwise fragile, you may have a bad day. Not to mention that a lot of these um, two-factor services require a uh, a connection. And of a network connection to validate said token. Um, so if your in- infrastructure depends on that, and that service is down, <laughs> good luck. And you would think, oh well, all all large organizations would run their their own internal authentication service. But think for a moment about all the places that use AWS primarily for their machine repositories, and they use a hosted Git solution and a hosted ticket tracker and a hosted... Oh, wait, they don't have control over any of that, really. And so they're they're at the whim not only I of their... I hate hardware. Come again? I hate hardware. I do, too. And part of the reason all of this matters is the recent security news about, for example, the SHA-1 um, domain collisions that Google has demonstrated that you can... They can now craft malicious SHA-1 file or files that maliciously comply to the SHA-1 protocol. Sorry, the noise outside threw my brain off. So a buddy of mine 15 years ago um, brute force MD5 for his senior design project um, at the university we graduated from uh, using a Beowulf cluster. And it's really exceedingly similar of showing how you can craft a message and hash that message and start building an MD5 sum that matches a known pre-existing MD5 sum of a, of another message. I don't believe the SHA-1 stuff is all that different, but I but the uh, computing power to, to do it um, is really finally becoming feasible. Yeah, the MD5 stuff now can be broken on your phone in less than a minute. Hey, that was a 15-year-old example, but um, don't use MD5. But SHA-1 is only a couple hundred GPUs for a year, and that is scary small for something that is used so uni- so widely on so many different things that it needs to go away from. Well, and if Google's announcing it now, imagine what certain state actors have already done how ah, many Mr. years paranoid previous? i'm just saying when when you have a lot of resources at hand but but to put this in into perspective though i mean we're, we're talking about what there's there's the collision then there's also the um there's two other proofs so to speak that you do when doing this and so uh, this is one out of three and it's the the least crazy one or i guess the the least difficult one um and i'm trying to remember the words now um and so uh oh no it's the second pre-image attack and the first pre-image attack um and so you know the collision attack is the easiest one to do so 
it's obvious that we got there first. So things like, um, and, and also I was reading, like people were saying things about like Git and how this is impacted. And, and Linus actually replied back and said, well, we, we're actually doing things a little different too. It's not like we're doing a straight hash. And, and depending on that, there's some extra bits that go into that hash that gets generated. Um, so it's not like they're directly, you know, today gets vulnerable. Uh, and he obviously did say they're going to try and, and move forward to a different hashing algorithm. Um, but it is Shaft cause for concern. <laughs> yeah, the other piece about the the two-factor authentication, and especially the way that U2F and the YubiKey implement the fact that your private key never leaves the device, was the news about Cloudflare's proxies being configured incorrectly and leaking uninitialized memory all over the place into like web caches and stuff. Oops. Did you read more on that one than I did, Jared? I think you shared that one with me originally. I didn't get deep into that article before we recorded. Yeah, um, I, I mean, yeah, I only was reading it off of Hacker News when right before we went recording. But basically, um, the their Cloudflare had an HTML parser in their reverse proxy, and apparently, when some people were not closing off tags and in the HTML that they were reverse proxying, it would cause the reverse proxy to uh, dump randomly the contents and memory. Um, and now obviously this is a shared service, so it's not just your contents and memory. It's, it's everybody from on that server from Cloudflare. Um, so you were getting bits and pieces of, of other, um, people's traffic or other people's SSH, I mean, um, uh, TLS keys, uh, and now you can find those in Google's, uh, search cache. And exactly. And it was, it was being cached. Supposedly, Google is trying to, to get all that stuff down, but obviously, once it's on the internet, uh, somebody's probably caching it somewhere. So, uh, it's and 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 also uh, HTTP contents of HTTP posts, uh, you know, that could contain, you know, who knows what. So, I, I personally think that's even a bigger deal than the the SHA one stuff today. Absolutely, I I completely agree, um, but this is. It, my my point was that with the YubiKey or other places where your your private key matter stays on a device you can't even access yourself, it won't appear in Google's cache because it's still on your device, and it gives you some layer of protection against the myriad of of security threats that are out there these days, like ever faster computers. Please take the time to rate this show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about the shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at http.operations.fm. Send us your thoughts and email, feedback at operations.fm, or use our Twitter handle, at operations.fm. That wraps it up for the 29th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Duesendorf. I am Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night.